0: Hello oh, and welcome to episode 8 of the Thinking LSAT podcast in San Francisco. I'm Nathan Fox in Washington, D.C. I have Ben Olson. How are you doing, Ben?
1: Good. I just got a big printer up in my office right now. It was 800 pounds, um, and it was
0: a miracle that it got into the office. So I need a new printer badly, and my printer sucks. And I, like, I've like i actually spent half of my morning fighting with mine. Um, well, I, I could recommend an 800 pound one if you'd like. Okay. Yeah, I think that might be a good call. Uh, the listeners might not be too excited about that. No, discussion. no, I'll, I'll tell you later. <laughs> cool. So, today on the show, we have a guest. Uh, his name is Zachary Kalo, and he's a friend of Ben's. We'll get into that uh, discussion later. First, we're going to start with some LSAT strategy discussion. Today, we're going to talk about reading comprehension. But uh, actually, before I wanted to do that, uh, Ben, I wanted to talk to you a little bit about our stats for the show. Have you been, been looking at them at all? Uh, I looked a couple of days ago. All right. Um, so, what, what, what have you seen? Well, the, fun, the part that I think is really fun to play with is the geography stuff. Have you looked at uh, what states and what countries we're, we're, we're big in? Yeah, I
1: <laughs> so I looked at it briefly, and I just remember uh, turning back to my wife and saying, "Well, wow, I'm glad we have 11 people from Japan. I didn't you know, I wouldn't have predicted that, but I guess there are people studying
0: the L side everywhere. So yeah, it's awesome. We uh, are obviously United States number one, but then we've got Canada, number two, Japan, number three, Korea, number four, China, Saudi Arabia, um, Croatia, <laughs> India, Italy. It's very exciting. So for the listeners out there, um, I'd actually really love to hear from you if you're uh, listening from Croatia or uh, Saudi Arabia or some other uh, far-off place. We'd love to hear from you. Um, I'm Nathan at foxlsat.com, and Ben is Ben at strategyprep.com. You could also make a note on the show pages at thinkinglsat.com and just say hello. We'd love to hear from you. We'd love to respond. Um, and then the other thing that I found was pretty interesting was looking at the states. Um, we are we're missing some. You want to guess? Uh, who,
2: uh,
0: well, Ohio. Ohio. Uh, no, we got Ohio. Let me let me see. Uh, we have so yes. We got we got some we got some people in Ohio. So sixteen total downloads. So not too well, many.
1: Oh, okay, so I'm thinking Wyoming has got to be the lowest. Isn't that the, the smallest state in terms of population? So maybe maybe Wyoming? I don't know. North
0: Dakota? These are my guesses. Nothing against these states. <laughs> <laughs> we have both North and South Dakota on the, on the board. Somebody downloaded it in both North and South Dakota. Okay. Um, and we got one download in Montana. But yeah, Wyoming, you're correct. We have no Wyoming. Um, we have no... Uh, Kansas. Oh, oh wait, I sorry. Have no, 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 that. no, no, no. We do have Kansas. Um, okay. No, sorry, it's uh, we have no Oklahoma. We have no Arkansas. We have no Louisiana. We have no Mississippi. I think Mississippi would have been my number one guess for no uh, listeners. Wait, why, why Mississippi? Um, just because I think it is. I don't know. I don't want to say anything insulting about Mississippi. <laughs> <laughs> Everybody knows how to spell Mississippi. So. That is true. Um, we're also missing West Virginia, and we're missing um, Vermont. So if you know anybody in West Virginia or Vermont or Mississippi or Louisiana, uh, tell them to get on it and download the podcast. We do have Alaska, and we also have Hawaii on the map. So. Oh, okay. Very good. Good job out there, listeners. Um... Ben, you're the one who suggested that we talk a little bit about reading comprehension today. So uh, why don't you kick that discussion off?
1: Sure. So I guess um, there's several things that I I think about when I talk. I I should say there's several things I like to talk about when I talk about reading comp. Um, But I thought for for, for this little introduction, I would focus on what I think is by far the most important thing. And, um, that is, as, as you're reading the, as well as, as I'm reading the reading comp passage, you know, you have four in, in the reading comp section. And as I'm reading through one of them, my number one goal is to figure out the main point of the passage, why the person is writing the passage and, So, with that goal in mind, as I'm reading it, specifically things that I will do that I think a lot of people don't do is that, first of all, I will, I don't, I'm not advocating to slow down or anything like that. In fact, I think when people read faster, they tend to focus more. I mean, obviously, you could read too fast and not comprehend what's going on, and that's not good. But when people, um, you know, try to pick up the pace, I think they tend to focus more so that it can actually increase comprehension to some extent. So I'm not saying to slow down, but when I read a sentence that I don't understand, um, I will immediately stop and reread it, especially at the beginning, so that I can kind of understand where the passage is going I think that a lot of times people will read something, and I think the LSAT tends to do this a lot at the beginning, where they they write very long abstract sentences that will some take sometimes take seven or eight lines yep. for just one sentence, yep. and they get lost in it. And I think you know the time pressure and so on, and the fact that they have the whole rest of the passage left. There's a, a thought that you know I better keep going, and hopefully it will kind of come together and it will make sense as I get more information from the rest of the passage. And I've found that if I just stop right then and I sort of reread that sentence and then it kind of like clicks and it makes sense, then the next sentence is all the more easier to read because it's in the context of the first sentence. So again, I'm not I'm not saying to like go really slow and parse this all out, but at least at the beginning, I kind of want to understand get a clear picture in my mind where this passage seems to be going, and I'll usually try to predict it as well. And then sometimes I'm wrong, but that prediction is a guide for me to figure out ultimately what this person is trying to prove.
0: Yeah, I think your your tip about not reading the next sentence if you didn't understand the previous sentence is a really important one. And I don't know that I've ever seen that written down in an LSAT book, um, but I, I think it's I think it's really, really useful. Um, the LSAT, in a lot of ways, is a battle of will. And the reading comprehension, especially, is a battle of will, right? You have to force yourself to stay there. You have to force yourself to pay attention. You have mm-hmm. to force yourself to really get what the author is trying to uh, trying to drive at. And yeah I, yeah, I think what, what a student would do, especially a student that's feeling the time pressure, a student would read a sentence and... Not really get it, but, but say, oh, I don't have time to, re- to reread this. I need to keep moving forward because i got to get to those questions and answer them. Um, but mm-hmm. the problem is, if you do that, you end up not understanding the next sentence either and not understanding the sentence after that. And next thing you know, you have to reread the entire passage. Yeah. So yes, I, exactly. I really love that tip. I, I really love that idea of like you know, if you didn't understand the previous sentence, you're not going to understand the next one either. So make sure you understand that first sentence before you move on. Um, Interesting, Mm -hmm. when you say that you're predicting what's going to happen next in the passage, I think I do something similar. Why don't don't you tell me what you mean by that?
1: Well, um, so once I, let's say I read the first sentence and I don't understand it, so I stop right then and I read it again. And the first sentence is talking about how some scientists believe that black holes are, uh, I don't know, spinning a lot faster than we think they are or something like that. Okay. Um, so first, uh, first clue there, this, this person is telling us what some scientists think, not necessarily what he or she thinks. So I'm just wondering in my mind, oh, is this person going to say that they're wrong? Uh, Is she going to say that they're right? I don't know. I mean, sometimes I'll, based on the tone of the sentence, I might say, okay, so this passage is probably going to be about um, why these scientists are wrong and black holes don't spin as fast as you know as they think or whatever. And uh, you know, I'm not always right, but it's not really—at least in my mind—it's not so much to predict accurately. It's just to have some idea, and then the next sentence will either sort of confirm that prediction. Or it will kind of start to set the passage in another direction, and it just makes me aware of it. I'm, I'm not, you know, drifting off in my own thoughts. I'm sort of thinking, okay, this is where this is going, and either it continues to do so or it, or it doesn't. And I keep adjusting that prediction as I go along. And then it becomes pretty clear what the main point is, and then the passage may reaffirm that, like provide more evidence for whatever I think the main point is.
0: Is. You know, I, I've never thought about it, but I think I do the same thing. And the reason why I do it. I, so here's the way I teach it I say, uh, as I read the passage, I ask the author over and over, I say, why are you wasting my time with this?
2: Mm-hmm, mm-hmm.
0: And I, because. <laughs> why are you wasting my time? That's good. Why yeah. are you wasting my time with this? Because it puts me in a position where I now have to pay attention to the next thing that the author says. Mm -hmm. But I I do think that as I go, I am am trying to predict like, oh, you just told me that some scientist believes that black holes might be spinning faster than we had previously believed. Why are you wasting my time with this? Do you agree with this scientist or do you disagree with this scientist? And Mm -hmm. the point isn't that I am going to comprehend the passage by predicting what the author is going to say next. But the point is that by making a prediction, I will notice when the outcome is revealed. Yes. That's yes, what you're exactly. saying, right? You know what? Yeah, for- so, I have an analogy. Um, sorry to talk over you. I have, I have an analogy no, no, for go this. go ahead. Um, so there are sports that I don't give a shit about. For mm-hmm. example, football. And I know that probably the listeners are going to get pissed off that I don't care about football, but I just don't care about football. It's, it's un American of me. Fine. I don't care about football. But in the playoffs, a lot of times I'll actually make a bet on one of the playoff games okay. for the sole purpose of making myself care about the outcome, for the sole purpose yeah. of giving myself a rooting interest. Like this year, yeah. I actually made money betting against the 49ers. Now my California. The listeners are going to really hate me, but I I made money this year betting on the Seahawks just because I knew that I could get a bet. It would be really easy to say, "Hey, you want to bet fifty bucks? I'll bet fifty bucks on the Seahawks," and I got people to take that bet, which then gave me yeah. a rooting interest in uh, in the game. But you're yeah, actually yeah. doing this in the reading comprehension. I, th- I find this fascinating.
1: Yeah, and sometimes I'm. I mean, I would say. Half the time I'm wrong, but the thing is, as soon as I am wrong, as soon as the author says something contrary, like I'm predicting that the author is going to go against these scientists, and then the author says, and they're right, here's some more evidence. It's like, whoa, that jumps out at me, and I say, okay, well, that's the main point, and then that's my new prediction, and again, that may be proven wrong, but uh, – A lot of times the author then starts providing evidence and it's like, oh, okay, I was right. And so then the rest of the passage is a breeze because it's sort of like, you know what the point is and you're just reading through the rest to see what, you know, pieces of evidence the author is using to support that point. And so a lot of times I feel like I can read faster.
0: Yeah, I think I noticed that the other day, actually, I was doing a reading comprehension passage with a student, and I I was really careful and really slow in the first paragraph, or maybe the first two paragraphs, and then I noticed that somewhere in the third or the fourth paragraph, I was totally skimming over some of the stuff, because I, I could tell that it was like, oh, well, here's a list of reasons why the author thinks this is a good idea, but the point was to figure out that the author thinks it's a good idea. Once I got that, then I got the main gist of the passage. Like, I've already comprehended the passage. The rest of it is just detail, and if I need to go back to the passage to find that detail, I can do so.
1: Yeah, oh, exactly. And I mean, the other thing, too, is once you know what direction the author is headed, in other words, they think this is a good thing or they think this is a bad thing, that makes eliminating a lot of answer choices super easy because you just say, well, the author was going in the other
0: direction. He didn't like this book or you know, right. she did like this book or whatever. So Yeah, the point is not so much that your prediction is going to be correct. The point is just that the prediction is going to to help you figure out whether, to help you pay attention long enough to know whether you were right or wrong. Yeah. Okay, so just to recap, uh, this, is, this is, I think, really great stuff. Um, I think there are three tips, maybe? Number one was don't read a sentence uh, if you didn't understand the previous sentence. And this is especially important at the beginning of a passage. Yes,
2: okay. Mm-hmm. Number
0: two was uh, make a prediction about what the author is, is thinking so that you can, that will help you to pay attention to the rest of the passage. Mm-hmm. And then a third tip might be once you have figured out the author's main point, if you're going to skim, maybe you can skim later on in the passage. Yeah. But probably not at the beginning. Yes.
1: And I, and I would add to that. I, this is just a thought I had as you're giving those tips. Um, so, and you gave them in a good order because you said, you know, reread the sentence if you didn't get it. And then you said, make a prediction well i think a good test is if you can't make a prediction on where the passage is likely going maybe you don't really have a very clear
0: understanding of what was just said like it's a little cloudy i think that's absolutely right fantastic i'm glad we had this little uh, discussion maybe we'll talk about reading comprehension more in the future this was really useful yeah. all right you want to go get our guest yeah, great thanks let's do it
1: So um, today uh, we have a lot of questions about law school stuff, and we, we brought you on the show, Zach, just to kind of get you know pick your brain, if that's okay. But uh, quickly, I wanted to introduce you. Um, so about three years ago, uh, Zach reached out to to me and said, "Hey, do you want help with admissions consulting?" And I said, "Oh, sure." And at the time, I was the one who was uh, helping um, my students most of the time. And I started uh, sending students to Zach and I quickly realized based on the, the feedback that he was sending me and the students were sending me that that you were way better than I am. So <laughs> I quickly stopped doing any admissions consulting and send sending everyone that asked for help to you just because you seem to know so much about All the different schools, uh, the legal industry in general, I just felt like it was a disservice almost to give my advice. Um, Not that it was necessarily bad, it just wasn't as complete as yours. Um, I know that you're a law professor, that you went to UVA Law School, which is in the top 10, the University of Virginia, Um, and you have a PhD and you're working on your second one. I don't know. Is there anything else that you'd like to to tell us
2: about yourself, Zachary? Well, that's that's probably enough. Uh, but in my in my capacity as a law professor, I've seen the admissions process from from the law school side. Schools will handle it differently. Some schools will outsource more of the work to administrators. Others will give the faculty a more uh, outsized role. So it's it, one thing I, I hope I can bring to the table is is a sense of what schools are looking for from the perspective both of, of the admissions process but also from the from the perspective of, of the faculty and uh, these are these are complicated and, and in many ways challenging times for for legal education and for legal practice and and so there's some distinctive dynamics in play right now uh, that, that on one hand do present some opportunities uh, but also create some uh, some additional considerations that really should be brought onto the table when thinking about the whole process of, of selecting schools, cultivating an application, and thinking ultimately about where you'd like to be in five or six or or seven years. So I hope that I can uh, can help bring some uh, some insight to to the larger landscape that we're confronting right now.
1: Yeah, well, exactly. That's that's actually um, what I, I wanted to start off with. I remember uh, a year or so ago, maybe two years ago, you mentioned that <laughs> – Historically, I guess there were around—not historically, but maybe in the last decade—the average number of applicants per year was 140,000. Is that
2: correct? It sounds about right. I, I don't recall the, the precise number, but they're um, uh, they, they're down about 50% over the last 10 years, with uh, with a particularly precipitous drop in in the last three or four years, which I've seen a, a consistent. Diminution in the number of applicants nationwide.
1: Mm-hmm. But
2: at the same time, we've also seen—I I don't have an exact number, but I'd say in the range of six, eight, ten new law schools during that same time have have opened their doors. So there's a, there's a, a, a real supply-demand imbalance right now. Um, uh, universities, as you can imagine, tend to be fairly um, uh, immobile institutions, certainly compared to, to say a business in the private sector, there just are, are fixed costs and other institutional reasons why they can't respond quickly, you know, tenured faculty, just, just sort of the structure of the administration. So we've got a, a really complicated situation where, where the number of applications is far, far below the, the, the capacity of schools. Um, and, uh, um, uh, Schools are really not in you know, a schools have built budgetary models around the ability to, to bring in a class of a certain number. And there just are not enough warm bodies who are seeking admission to law school to to make that work. So we're seeing all kinds of, of shakedown in, in law schools. Um, turnover in faculty. It uh, wouldn't surprise me if schools are, are going to close at some point. There have been some some interesting uh, trickle-down effects of this in terms of how schools understand their pedagogical function, I mean, just the structure and the character of a legal education is changing in some interesting ways we might want to discuss, because it does bear on on the experience one will have while in law school. So, it, so it's a complicated time right now for for law schools, uh, and, and you know, part of this, of course, is in response to changes in, in the legal industry more generally, uh, hiring being down across the board. Though I, though I did see a piece just a couple of days in the Wall Street Journal that, that hiring at big firms is is up about 10 percent. But but it's going to take some time for that to have any real, I think, trickle-down effect on, on admissions. Um, so this complicates the process by which applicants need to think about what they're getting into. But of course, one of the upshots is that schools are are really desperate to get good good applicants in the door, and and are willing to make significant financial uh, offers to try to make that happen. I mean, there's, there's this balancing act, right, with schools. I mean, they need to make their budgets work.
1: Mm-hmm. Uh, yes. They also
2: have have uh, you know, reputation matters in the law school world, probably more so than any other field of, of higher education. So there's this constant balancing act between we just need enough paying customers to to. to Come out on the right side at the end of the year, but we've got numbers to worry about. You know, we've got our, SA, our LSATs, we've got our GPA, we've got our, our reputation and our ranking. So different schools have dealt with this in different ways. Some have uh, just just decided, in some sense, to, to move beyond the rankings game. They've, they've just uh, kind of dropped a deep institutional concern with with numbers and ranking. Other schools would, have. Oh yeah, would you say that that's true for the the uh, the higher rank schools and the top? no no it's just yeah. the opposite it tends to be at the the lower ranked schools that were already at something of a market disadvantage that have now made probably a rational decision recognizing that that they just don't have enough resources to 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 compete in that game and, and their more media concern is is one of the existential varieties it's just having enough students in the door the, uh, the the schools at the at the elite or even just the higher end of the spectrum have have by and large Maintain their 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 historic numbers, and in fact, in some cases, have have actually increased them. So, competition to get into your top ten, your top fourteen, your top twenty five schools, wherever you want to draw that line, is is in many ways as competitive as ever. Though, though, even at some of those schools, the implications of of, of all of this shakedown are being felt. Uh, schools are cutting class sizes, uh, smaller numbers than further down the line. But you're seeing smaller class sizes. You're seeing. Uh, Less investment in, in some of the perks on, say, the faculty side. I mean, you know, there's, there's a bit of a trimming of the fat, but, um, but in terms of the kinds of credentials you need to get into what you would think of as your most elite competitive national schools, not, not much has changed on that end.
1: Well, so wait, maybe one way they've kept their numbers is by reducing the class size so they don't have to accept as many people. And then they can still remain somewhat selective.
2: That, that's right. Uh, I, I think the the drop in class size has been much less severe. Uh, I just I heard from a colleague of mine at at uh, at the University of Virginia that they're looking at a cut of around ten percent. So so it's not insignificant, but it's much less much less significant than you're seeing at schools further down the food chain, which simply I mean, which which really are, are struggling just to get enough people attracted in their school. Uh, the other thing too is the the. Uh, the schools at the at the higher end of things are, are still in a financially well off position, and thus they have the resources to, you know, to 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 to, to invest in in essentially you know, buying high, buying students. You know, I mean, it's a, you put a more attractive offer on the table, and, and they've got they've got the reserves to to be able to do that. Uh, other other law schools, and historically, law schools were cash cows for universities and they they would send millions of dollars from the law school to other units of the university. In many cases now, universities are actively subsidizing law schools to to keep them afloat in the hopes that in 2 years, 3 years, 4 years time, things will things will recalibrate.
1: What what like what tier of law schools do you think are doing that? Are we talking the, you know, between 50 and
2: 100 or you know, I guess I'm just trying to get a sense of Yeah, it's up. It, it, it's hard to know exactly. Um, and I'm not sure you could just draw a line somewhere in the US news rankings and say schools below this spot are responding in this way. It's, it's a bit more scattershot. It's a bit more. some of this of course is responsive to to market conditions. Um, what's the regional economic outlook like? How many schools are there? You know here in Chicago we've got uh, what six schools in the city ranging from two elite national schools, Chicago and Northwestern. Three schools that were historically, you know, very, very kind of solid, if regional schools—Loyola, DePaul, and Kent—and then you've got John Marshall, which historically had, you know, lower admissions criteria, but but tend to be a, you know, have a have a very established niche within the Chicago market, both on the on the private side and the public side. You've got Notre Dame, about ninety miles down the road, which traditionally fed a lot of people into big Chicago firms. Uh, you've got Valparaiso, uh, forty miles outside the city. Northern Illinois, so, so it's a you know there are ten schools that feed into this market in various ways, and uh, the Chicago economy is is not all that good right now. Uh, you know, at best, the I'd, I'd say it's a pretty static uh, economic model. So so here you've got particularly severe consequences, and and where you're seeing it is those schools in the middle, Kent, Loyola, DePaul, are competing for the same pool of applicants. You know, historically they're. Students will often pair those or couple those schools together, and now you've just got a smaller pool of applicants. So, so schools have responded in different ways. DePaul's numbers have dropped quite a bit. Uh, Loyola has kept their numbers up, but they've done so by cutting the class size, and they've done so by finding other revenue streams that allow for subsidization. Um, so, you know, that's just… Yeah, exactly. You know, I think the Washington market, because, because of, of just the, st- the state of the economy there, um, you know, things are a little bit different. But, but uh, no school has been untouched by this. It's, it's really just a matter of, of degree.
0: Hey, Zach, just to, um, just to go take a step back for a second, um, for the listeners, can you tell the listeners where you teach, what you teach, how long you've been teaching
2: Sure, yeah. I'm on the faculty at Valparaiso University Law School, and uh, it's in northwest Indiana, about 40 miles outside of downtown Chicago. I've been on the faculty for, uh, for seven years, and I teach a range of courses, commercial law, uh, property law, international law, law and religion. Great. And did you practice
0: law before becoming a law professor?
2: I did. I practiced law at a at a at a banking law firm in uh, in Washington, actually in Foggy Bottom, not but uh, not but two three blocks from uh, from Ben's office there.
0: Oh. What do you like better? You like the teaching better, or do you like practicing better? <laughs> they're
2: they're you know they're they're, they're very different uh very different worlds. Um, I mean. People often think that they're, you know, you could sort of migrate back and forth, but uh, they, they really, in some ways, rely on fundamentally different skills. And, and uh, you know, there's much to enjoy about legal practice, but at the end of the day, I think of myself more uh, as a scholar and, and really enjoy, enjoy that kind of work.
0: What's your, uh, what's, just on your day-to-day, what's your balance between teaching and
2: uh, research? Well, you know, here in the summer, I've, I've got much more flexibility to invest in, uh, in the research side of things. During, during the academic term, I'd say, you know, maybe a quarter of, uh, quarter of a week would be devoted to uh, teaching and just student interaction. Maybe another quarter to miscellaneous administrative functions. And then, you know, the other 50% of the time, other activities that would include research and writing, uh, professional work, travel, and so forth.
0: Here in San Francisco, um, it seems that the law schools tend to share professors around uh, to some degree. Does that happen in the Chicago
2: area as well? Increasingly so. Uh, one effect I, I suspect of this, just the 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 the, um, uh, just the, 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 uh, the the changes in the market conditions in legal education, is going to be various. Um, various ways in which law schools seek to to, to become more efficient. So, so one thing you're seeing in Chicago, for instance, I teach at DePaul as, as an adjunct. Uh, one of the courses I teach is a seminar on on Islamic law. Uh, so, you know, you might get 10 students from DePaul who, who would take that. What they did this year, uh, especially with, with more specialized courses like this, was to open up enrollment to students at Loyola and Kent. So you you provide the benefit to all three of those schools, but you do so only having to pay one professorial salary. So so you are seeing a a, a bit of that simply as a way to um, uh, to trim costs. Uh, I you know law schools have have traditionally, and in various ways, relied on adjuncts, um, oftentimes to to fill in gaps where the core research faculty didn't have. Requisite expertise. So you would see this more on the on the skills end of, of things. You would bring practitioners in to, to teach courses. I think that's only going to increase both as a both as a response to financial concerns, but also schools, and this is maybe something we we can talk about down the line. Schools are becoming much more focused on what you could broadly call skills education. Uh, and I think the experience at most law schools now will be, will take more the form of, of a trade school, if you will. I mean, really focusing on preparing graduates to go out and, and immediately begin to practice law. So part of that has been various adjustments in curricular focus, including more teaching by adjuncts, more people in the field, more skills and practice-oriented courses. So, so all of these, these dynamics, I think, are, are kind of blending together. Very good. Thanks.
1: Um... So kind of stepping back even further, I guess, in the context of this, all these changes, do you have any advice for people who are considering whether they even should go to law school? Like what what things should they be considering um, and so on? I mean, I don't know if that necessarily changes mm-hmm. time to time, but it might change with the recent
2: changes you know? Yeah. No, I'm, I'm glad you asked that. Uh, you know, it's probably not good for it's not good for any of our businesses to, to discourage too many people from not considering law school. But but it is I think it's it's important before investing the time and the energy, certainly in, in applying, but then even more so in, in going through three years of education to make sure you know what you're getting into and to be aware of of the risks and, and what the potential outcomes could be. You know I think there's you know a lot of people probably got this advice at some point in their lives that that a law degree is a good general degree you can you can do anything with with a law degree and and I'm not sure that's ever really been the case you know at the at the end of the day a law degree primarily trains people to practice law and and that's important to keep in mind i mean i i would I would almost never counsel someone to go to law school unless they were aware of what they were getting into and were actively interested in the practice of law. I think that's going to be all the more the case now. Uh, you know, law school will be more and more skills oriented. Your, you know, your experience certainly in say the third year of law school is going to be getting your feet wet in various kinds of of legal practice activities or simulations. Um, so, you know, if you don't, if you don't have at least a, a genuine openness to, to being a legal practitioner, I think you need to think twice about, about getting involved in this. Mm-hmm. Now, that said, uh, one thing that we're seeing in, in in large part as a response to the employment market, I mean, if, if, you know, the, this data is all available online, but the employment statistics for recent law grads has been horrible the past couple of years. Uh Law schools are required as part of the accreditation process to report to the American Bar Association, the the accrediting agency, the percentage of graduates employed at graduation and then nine months out. And the the term of art is they have to be employed in a job requiring a JD. So not not necessarily the practice of law, but a job that could be plausibly – described as requiring the skills of a, of a JD. So you can, you can you, in fact, applicants should look this up as part of the process of, of doing their due diligence on schools they're, they're considering applying to. But the numbers have been awful. You know, the employment market has been, has been terrible. Uh, and, and part of the response to this by law schools, I think quite, quite, uh, quite wisely, has been to try to uh, both invest in terms of programs and resources, uh, ways to allow the JD to be used in other settings. Um, you know, law and business being being a, a one area where we've seen a lot of activity. So so incorporating aspects into the JD program that would allow a graduate to to go into business, to go into consulting, sort of activities that aren't narrowly speaking the practice of law. Uh, so 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 there are some opportunities out there for that, and and they're also prodding students to think more creatively. And a lot of law schools now are putting on programs, bringing in speakers and alums who can who can spark. Creative thinking about other employment possibilities. Now, th- that still leaves open the question of whether one should go to law school with the thought of doing something other than law. You know, there, there, are, I'd, I'd, I'd be willing to, to entertain someone trying to make a case for doing that, but, but I think there's still a rebuttable presumption against spending three years and six figures to to do that if you're not open to practicing law. But, but I think you know, just out of necessity, people with. Uh, recent graduates of law schools who want to be actively employed at a salary that allows them to pay off their loans are going to have to increasingly think about options outside of the practice of law. And, you know, just as I mentioned before, part of, I think, part of the, part of the prudent exercise of due diligence and thinking about where you're going to apply is what can schools offer in that respect? What are graduates doing? Uh, what percentage are employed, period, but also what percentage are finding opportunities outside of the traditional pathways, local firms, government, et cetera?
1: Yeah. Now, one thing I've heard a lot recently is I hear a lot of students saying, um, "I'm I'm going to go to law school if I can get into a top ten program, but if I can't, then I'm not going." And sometimes that gives me pause because I think, "Well, what? You know, why are you going? Are you really interested in practicing law, or is this just about getting a degree at a great program?"
2: Mm-hmm.
1: Well yeah, I don't know. Any, any thoughts on
2: that? Is that <laughs> yeah, no. There's there are multiple layers, I think, to that question. Though it though, it's, though it raises a very serious point that should not be summarily dismissed. Uh, law is, as I mean, you, you you went to law school, and you, I mean, you know that uh, you know law school is incredibly hierarchical and and uh, prestige driven in ways that are that are irrational and ways that I think are, are destructive. But but it's it just it just is the way that it is. And by and large, there are certain firms, there are certain jobs, there are certain judges who hire clerks who will not consider you if you don't go to a certain law school. I mean, you know, there always are exceptions, but in the aggregate, if you look at who gets hired at... The big firms in Washington and San Francisco and Chicago, if you look at who gets hired for the appellate clerkships, if you look at who gets hired to, to work in prestigious federal government jobs, etc., mm-hmm. they tend to come predominantly from, you know, a, a smaller subset of law schools. I think it's somewhere in the range, you know, academia is, is the same way. It's upwards of 80-some percent, I think it is, of all law professors went to about 10, 12 schools. So, you know, so one answer to that question is if, there, if, if you know what you want to do, and the odds are, doing that thing requires a certain credential. Then, then it's not irrational to say, look, if I don't get into one of the ten or twelve schools, if, if my goal is to be a law professor, and I can't get into one of those small set of schools, then you've got to question the wisdom of of the time and money investment. Now, I mean, if your goal is to be a lawyer, you know, to be a practicing lawyer and just to have a have a thriving and satisfying career, I think the story gets more complicated. Um, you know, outside of you know, you'll see different different groupings. Sometimes you'll hear the top 14 uh, law schools, which, which I believe was invented by the dean at Northwestern Law School, which just happens to have been ranked number four. <laughs> uh, you'll, so you'll sometimes see the top 14. But, you know, you can sort of pick and choose what your number is. But there are a relatively small set of schools that I think are truly national. You know, they, 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 they truly have a, a national alumni base and employment scope. Um, I would say, by and large, outside of that group of schools—you know, Yale, Harvard, Chicago, Stanford, NYU, Georgetown, Virginia, Duke, Penn, Michigan, Berkeley, Stanford, etc.—outside of that that list of schools, almost everything becomes local. You know, law, at the end of the day, is still, in some very determined ways, a local profession. Um, so, if someone came to me and said they, you know, they want to practice in know, Cleveland, and they got into uh, you know a really good school that was ranked. Fortieth, and they got into you know Case Western. Uh, where would I say to go? I'd say probably go to Case Western. Uh, you know, so so there so there are other there are other dynamics at play, which is you know you've got to think about the 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 embeddedness of the school you're looking at in the employment market where, where you want to be. Now, all that said, I'll, I'll I'll add one more thing, which is you know it's it's an issue that, that we confront at a, at at the school where I teach, which uh, you know we we struggled as a lot of schools have in recent years with, with, with getting our students jobs. And, you know, I mean, I'll be frank about it. If, if you get into a lower ranked law school and you're looking at having to make a significant financial investment to attend that school, then you need to think seriously about whether this is a wise use of time and money. You know, it's three years, it's significant debt, it's money not earned. And then it's you know interest on that debt while you're looking for a job and uh, run the numbers. But you know if you if you're trying to service $150,000 in debt, it's really hard to do that on a $50,000 salary or $60,000 salary. So you know I'm I'm not dissuading people from making that decision. I think there are very good situations where it can and perhaps ought to be made. But if if those are the best options on the table, uh, I it, there's a there's a difficult conversation that needs to be had. And, and and I think a lot of people understandably really have their hearts in a law school. You know, it's something they've wanted to do. They've worked hard. They've invested in the process and their impulse is to go to law school. You know, they get it, they get into that one school or they get into those two schools mm-hmm. and those are the options on the table. And, and it's understandable. You know, you, you, you want to, you want to chase the dream, but um look at the numbers, look at what percentage of students are employed, look at how much they're making, what, what the median salary is. And, you know, you've got to make, you know, you, you, it's it's worth thinking about. Uh, and all the more so right now in, in this market. Now, you know, people who are thinking you are in the process now of thinking about applying one or two years down the road, who are actively planning to apply this fall, you know, you're you're, you're kind of on the futures market for what things are gonna be like three and four years down the road. And, and there are some good indications that uh, you know 3 and 4 years from now hiring might well be improved you know as i as i mentioned a little while ago there's there's indications that the big firms you know big national big city firms are starting to hire more uh, that might well trickle down to your smaller and mid-sized firms government sequestration is over etc but all that said and this is this is something nobody quite knows but it's one reason why law schools are still viewing themselves as in a really tenuous position, even if employment starts to improve some, is there are good reasons to think that that what we saw when the legal market began to collapse, uh, you know, around the same time as the as the financial markets more generally, that, that what's going to be erected in its place is not just going to be more of the same, but rather we're experiencing some fundamental structural changes in the practice of law and the organization of the legal market, reflecting the unwillingness of big corporations to pay hundreds of dollars an hour for first-year associates to do work, mm-hmm. the internationalization of internationalization of law. You know, I mean a lot of work can be can be outsourced now in the same way that that manufacturing can be outsourced. I mean, there there are well-trained English-speaking lawyers in India who, who can do work for pennies on the dollar. Technology is profoundly changing things and and, and eliminating entire fields of law. So, you know, all that to say, uh, we're still in very uncertain times. And, you know, when I went to law school, which wasn't all that long ago, I graduated in 2005. And, uh, you know, if you did reasonably well and you just, you know, you, you, you just kind of rode the conveyor belt, you know, and, and the you know, employers would come to the campus and they would interview you and you would you know, you basically just choose where do where you want to live, which city do you want to be in. And, and that's not the case anymore. I'll add just as an aside, something students need to start thinking about fairly early on. Is, is how to be entrepreneurial. You know, you've got to be an aggressive job searcher now. You know, the, the jobs don't come to you. And you know, while, while on one hand, people may think they can just sort of hold off on this, this is a problem for the first year in law school or the second year in law school. But I think it actually makes sense to, to begin thinking about these questions early on as part of the application process. Where are you going to apply? What legal market are you going to target? Where do you have connections, personal and familial connections? Um, what's the story you're going to tell? Do you want to be in public law or private law? Do you want to work for the government or do you want to work for a firm? I mean, you need to start crafting the, uh, you know, the, the resources that, that are going to define your professional possibilities early on in the process. And, and I think ultimately this folds into some of the strategic thinking that one you bring to bear uh, even, even to, to, to the application process.
1: Um, speaking of that, I wanted to ask some questions about the personal statement and so on, but Nathan,
0: did you have any questions before that? Um, I mean, I, I have a million questions, so there's a lot of different directions we can go in. One thing, you mentioned academia, Zach, and um, one thing that I hear from a lot of my LSAT students is these kind of vague notions of, oh, well, I don't, I don't really want to practice law, but I, I think someday I might want to be a law professor. Mm-hmm. What, uh, what, what might you say to that line of reasoning?
2: Yeah, I mean, we'll have to be a little bit speculative because I think the law professor market is, is also changing. But, uh, you know, I know both of you get a lot of very high-caliber, high-achieving, well-credentialed students who, who go to top 10 schools. I mean, for, for Ben, I've worked with a number of students in, in just the past couple of years who've gone to Yale, Harvard, and the kinds of schools that, that at least in principle, put that option on the table. So step one is, if, I mean, if you have an inkling of wanting to be a law professor, step one is go to a school where that historically remains a possibility. Uh, step two would be, uh, well, let me, let me backtrack. So historically, and even, even up to the, the years when I entered the teaching market, there were very well-defined pathways that one would follow. You went to a top 10, top 12 school, you did well academically, you served on the law review, maybe you clerked, uh, you practiced law, you know, probably in a big market, you know, in a, in a, in a name firm in a, in a major metropolitan area for a year or two, not too long. You know, you practiced for too long, you got, you got tainted. So for a couple of years or, you know, you practiced for the government, you, you know, with the, with the Department of Justice, so, you know, fairly high prestige uh, uh, practice, but again, only for a short period of time. And you wrote you had to publish Uh, and increasingly those publishing demands went from one article to two articles to three articles, but, but people sort of knew what the criteria were. And and so you could make a judgment about, about uh, the viability of, of, of doing that. Uh, Some of that trajectory I think is, and will remain the same. And uh, I, I would probably begin counseling anybody who, who had an inkling of an interest in, in legal academia to, to, to make that first criteria being go to the right kind of school. Go to the right but school and
0: excel academically and, and excel publish. excel academically, yeah. that's
2: right. Now, all of that said, uh, and you know, a couple, couple of other issues to, to mention here, uh, as schools become more skills-oriented, uh, as, you know, take take my school, for instance, Valparaiso. So we began in, you know, around the time that I joined the faculty, being much more aggressive about hiring Nationally, if you will, um, hiring people who fit the traditional mold of, of someone who you know, had a PhD, had published a lot, practiced very little, had no deep connections to the employment market, etc. cetera. I think our school uh, and I think a lot of other schools who fit that bill are going to start to question whether building a faculty around the Harvard model makes sense. No. That you know are, are, are those people optimally suited to train students with the skills they need want and optimally situated to help them get jobs in the markets they want? So I think we, we might well begin to see something of a return to how uh, law professorships used to work I mean decades ago, which was people would have very uh, robust experience as a practicing attorney and sometimes go into teaching as a second career. I think there'll be a lot more opportunities for adjuncts, you know, who want to teach on the side uh, as, a, as a parallel, you know, I wouldn't call it a profession, it's not going to make you a whole lot of money, but, but something you might enjoy, it gets a foot into the door of academia. And I think most people who are in a, certainly in a big city with multiple law schools will have that opportunity. But uh, uh, one other thing I'd say here is, if anybody's thinking about this now, I and mean, if someone is is entering law school over the next year or so, with the thought of putting themselves on the five or six year fast track to a professorship, uh, these are risky times. I, you know, I, I can't say what it's going to look like in five or six years, but just to give an indication of where we are last year, I think I. I I can't recall the precise number, but I think it was in the range of maybe seventy or eighty people were hired for law school professorships across the country. So we're talking two hundred plus law schools hired eighty people mm. for, for entry level jobs. Uh, law school, you know, more people have have accepted buyouts and are leaving faculties than are coming on as first year professors. Mm. Now, you know, well some of this settle out into a new equilibrium probably, but but these are you know these are the, the, this is not the time to to say I'm going to. Law school only because, or primarily because I want to be an academic, and if I get stuck in the drudgery of being a big firm lawyer, I'm going to be miserable because that may well be what you're what you're looking at. Um, so, yeah, that was sort of a long-winded answer, but to, but to, you know to kind of ground it in your initial question, I think it gets back to this idea that that one who goes to law school should have a genuine interest in the law and in the practice of law, and there's much to love about being a, a professor. But the jobs are going to be increasingly difficult to get, and, and I also think that they're going to be the, – the, the texture of what one does day in and day out as a professor may change. There will be a small number of schools where the faculty is engaged in uh, determined research work of a, of a particularly theoretical bent, and the scholarship to the extent it's done at many other schools will be increasingly practical. You know, I'm not passing normative judgment on that, but but um, people who think they can get into law teaching, as many people did uh, for a long time, get into law teaching because they really wanted to be a humanities scholar but wanted a better paycheck. Uh, this, uh, uh, one should not go to law school with that hope or expectation in mind anymore. Makes sense.
0: I have other questions, but uh, Ben, you want to you want to go down your list?
1: Well, I guess I was just. Curious um, since you've had the opportunity to look at uh, hundreds of of applications as i as I recall from your experience you know at your law school, what you would recommend to people who are you know considering their personal statement maybe haven't started it yet but some of the things the dos and maybe more importantly the don'ts of personal statements if if you have any thoughts on that
2: yeah let's see a couple couple thoughts we can we can work through here um, on the don'ts. Uh, one thing that I, I, I almost categorically reject as, as, a, as, a, as an approach to a personal statement, and there's a lot of advice out there on various websites that will, that will counsel you to do this, but, but I, I think it's, it's very difficult to pull off. And when it fails, it fails miserably. And that's the personal statement that takes the arc of uh, challenge in my life, challenge overcome. Now I'm a better person and I want to go to law school. Um, there, there's some subversions of that which are not which are not awful, but but I think a lot of people feel the need to invent a challenge in their life, or, or to present themselves as as having been beset with incessant hardship. Uh, and sometimes it's authentic. And if it's authentic and this is something that's deeply meaningful to the person and perhaps has colored their their decision to go to law school, then then you know, I'm, I'm not counseling against, building a personal statement around this but but that narrative arc is one which so so many people will, will embrace and it, it, it oftentimes just comes across as trite enforced and inauthentic a second a second model that that also I think there's a certain presumption against adopting is the why I want to be a lawyer statement um, there there are there are many occasions where a a a personal statement might appropriately uh, touch on either either obtusely or, or in some cases quite straightforwardly the matter of why one wants to go to law school what one wants to do with a law degree etc and and again this is not something to be categorically rejected but equally so you know a statement that that builds itself around yeah, I, I studied criminal justice and I watch lots of law and order and I'm passionate about this and that's why I'm going to go to law school rarely works well let me step back and and kind of indirectly get into the question of what then makes for for a good application I think here there's no you know there's no single answer and and any attempt to, to boil this down to to some pithy propositions probably fails to capture the complexity of the process and ultimately what needs to be the individualized nature of the process. But I, but I would say this, what a personal statement that really succeeds should do, optimally, is to reveal the writer and the applicant to be a thoughtful, a creative, a reflective, and a serious person. To show yourself to be a good writer, to be self-aware, to be reflective about yourself and the world, and to build from there. You know, to build in ways that might well touch on law. Maybe they don't touch on law at all. But, you know, if, if you're a serious applicant with the credentials to be applying to law schools, assume that people reading these essays know that you want to be there. You know, and, 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 you know, that's, that's, that's prima facie there. So your job in the statement isn't to try to persuade the reader that you want to go to law school or even necessarily to explain why you want to go to law school. It's to reveal part of who you are. You know, that you're that you're critical, that you're a good writer, that you're a serious thinker, etc. And once you know, once you adopt that general starting point, then the process of figuring out the what, you know, what to build your statement around becomes on one hand, of course, more complicated because because you know your whole life becomes becomes potential fodder. But equally so, I think it becomes much more liberating. You know, you can you know, you just have an opportunity in the space to think about. What matters most to you? You know what 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 you're passionate about, and uh, and once you can kind of settle on that, then I think actually the process of writing a statement unfolds quite well. Uh, one one other tidbit: um, a lot of statements, most statements, will either incorporate and often begin with an anecdote, you know, to, to something so, sort of a personal story, and they and they thus have a sort of narrative quality about them. Mm-hmm. I I. You, you know i'm i'm somewhat suspicious about forcing this you know when when the story's not there to force it but but that said I, I i do think it is the case you know right or wrong it just is the case that that a lot of readers of applications especially in admissions offices like that you know do they just like it as a as a device in the same way it's just it's acquired a certain kind of customary status even you know even in newspapers today right i mean you read you read hard news articles in the post or the times and almost all these stories, right, you know, often will begin with a story, right? And the same thing in the, you know, the State of the Union address, right? It's not about abstract policy discussions about it. It's about highlighting things with respect to particular people and their, and their stories and their struggles and so forth. And I think that same kind of quality, and, you know, maybe it's just, it's just um, where we are culturally that, you know, that, that you know, that some, something about, you know, the, the sharing of the self matters it has a certain kind of currency but be that as it may i i do think there's probably a certain conventional quality about that that is worth taking seriously so what i often counsel people that i work with to do is as kind of parallel exercises is to think about just what what are they passionate about you know what what moves them both about their experiences in life about the world, I mean, just you know, think big, think freely. Just, just go for a long walk, and and just, just you know, think about what keeps you up at night. Yeah. But then, simultaneously, think about think about an experience, a story, be it involving yourself or others, that somehow encapsulates the you know the the insight or the emotion that you want to convey, and to use that as a creative, just a literary device, a creative way of framing the story that you want to convey in the statement. So, you know, all that to say, I think you know, I think the process of writing a statement is is both you know, there's some 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 guidelines, some very determined guidelines that one can follow which which can be can 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 provide some some good counsel, but equally so, you know, you need to be you need to, to, to kind of move outside of of narrow formulated approaches to the statement. And and ultimately those are the ones that are best. I mean, if you want to play it safe, there there are some very simple cut and paste uh, uh, formulas that one can use, and and you'll get a perfectly serviceable statement. But uh, you know, without without going into the realm of engaging in risky strategies, there there are ways that are more creative and I, that I think ultimately make possible a truly good statement. And uh, it, it, and it's not hard to get there, and it's worth it's worth the time and the effort. Because you know, as, as as I'm sure we'll we'll talk about momentarily. I mean, you know, you've got three main parts of your application. You've got the LSAT, you've got your GPA. And, uh, uh, you know, the personal statement after those two are done is the one thing that's under your control in a very determined way. Uh, so, so a lot, uh, a lot of possibilities ride on that and it's worth investing heavily in, in making a really good impression with that statement. Yeah. Nathan, do you have any questions?
0: Um, I'm curious how hands-on you would get Zach with, Uh, with somebody's personal statement. The reason why I ask is that I have a colleague here in San Francisco. All she does is teach people how to do law school personal statements, but she has a policy now of not ever actually uh, giving feedback on someone's personal statement. And the reason is, I guess schools have started to ask this question uh, on the application. um, Did you have... Help with the personal statement. Can you talk about that at all? Does, does do you know if
2: Valparaiso has that question on the application? I, I don't believe they do. I, I'm, I can't. I can't say that definitively. I, I don't believe they do. Um, but you know, the way that I view my role is, you know, not as a, not by any means as a, as a. Ghostwriter. In fact, I, you know, I do no writing at all. I mean, I'll, I'll edit in the way that that you know that a friend or a family member would edit for, you know, for, for for readability and so forth. But but I I I I think the way that I view myself is is as a facilitator. You're raising questions, having conversations that help to prompt the person to draw out of themselves the raw material for then writing a statement. Um and 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 I and in many ways I think that the process I described earlier of what at least in my estimation makes for a really good statement can't be done by somebody else. I mean, and, and there's no. I mean, I, I don't even know what I would do by way of teaching how to write a personal statement. I mean, I can't. I couldn't even reduce the way that I approach this process to you know, to to a PowerPoint slide because it's not. You know, it, it's 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 not formulaic in that way. So, so what I tend to do is, is over the course of, of a series of, of typically phone conversations or, or meeting in person, if that's possible, is, is to have a conversation with the person, to ask them questions, to just to, to, you know, to ask them to tell me about themselves, to narrate things that matter, to, to ask what they what they want to do, what they've done, how they got to where they are, and to, to help them draw out of their own life and experiences and their own desires for who they want to be as a as a lawyer and a professional. The, the the sort of the you know the the data the raw material that can then be be turned into a statement. So so I you know I mean I as as someone who who works in higher education I'm I'm uh, you know, very sensitive to 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 the to the ever outsized and I think inappropriate role of of third parties or, or even parents in uh, in university admissions processes. Um, so so I, I do everything within my power to to make sure I don't. Cross into the line of giving giving inappropriate um, assistance, and, and I don't think I do. I mean, I think of myself as as filling in a role of of someone who you know, of, of how a friend would participate in this process if they were if they had the requisite expertise to provide counsel to 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 uh, to someone.
1: Hmm. Um, any other questions about that, Nathan? That was a interesting question. I'd be curious what. Uh, your colleague does. I, I would imagine it sounds something similar to what Zach is doing. I guess.
0: Um, actually, she. Well, I don't know. I think it might be overreaction on her part that she's that she's really nervous about crossing that line. I mean, I look at personal statements for my students, and I'm more than happy to point out, you know, flaws. And hey, I think you're using the wrong word here. I don't think that means what you think it means. Or you know, you've got typos here and there. And I mean. So that is your my hands are literally on it, um, but I don't know that there's anything wrong with that. I, I do think that there is that question out there: uh, Have you had any assistance with your personal statement? And so then at that point, the student's just going to have to say, "Yes, you know, I had friends help me copy edit it or something like that."
2: And people should right. I mean, you'd be you'd be foolish to to submit a personal statement without having another set of eyes or multiple sets of eyes look at it. Yeah, I can um, even see th- that question being. <laughs> I could see a law
0: school throwing out any application that where they answered no to that question.
2: Yeah. Like, are you
0: kidding me? You sent this yeah. to us without having anyone yeah. else look at it?
2: Are you going to submit to a, you know, are you going to submit a legal document to a court without having had a copy? Right. In first?
0: Right, exactly. Yeah.
2: And the process, you know, it's uh, law school admissions is I mean, it's a complicated Process, and it's a competitive process. No, I mean, I, I had the good fortune of knowing very early on, I mean, going back to when I was in college, that I wanted to go to law school and I wanted to be a law professor. And, and you know, you pick up along the way by osmosis a sense of what you need to do and how to do it. But, you know, there are many people you – know, some of whom are are you know extremely bright and privileged. Uh, you know others come later in life to realize they want to go to law school and just you know don't know the first thing about how to do it. But it's it's a complicated process, and and so I think there's a you know there's a very important and legitimate service that we all provide by by um, uh, you know enculturating people into into just just a, a really dense and difficult. Uh, situation and one which which, as we all well know, I mean it's a huge investment. I mean nobody would nobody would buy a car without consulting consumer reports and talking to people about financing and 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 so forth. and uh, you know where I think we're doing a similar a similar service.
0: Very, very interesting. Um, you're not involved at all in the admissions at Valparaiso, right?
2: No, I, I used to be. I mean I, I, there was a there was a season some years ago where where I would read, uh um, application packets, uh, just to, to faculty were, were given an opportunity to uh, uh, to review certain files that the admissions office passed along, but I don't I don't do that right now.
0: I think that the listeners would probably be really interested in anything that you have to say about the differences between the ways that, you know, maybe the schools that you know about Valparaiso, DePaul, other area law schools. What are the differences in, in the ways that the admissions decisions are being made? between
2: those schools yeah I, I, I can really only speak to, to to my school with any 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 real real clarity um, I, I would say this and I'll kind of kind of step back and, and offer perhaps some some, some broader remarks um, law school admissions is is part science and part art you know there most schools will whether whether you know whether this be uh, 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 formally adopted or, or informally understood have certain target numbers for admissions. And, you know, you can kind of tell, I mean, I, you know, you can tell just based from, from past admissions data that's, that's publicly available as well as just a sense of the school about where those numbers are. And so I can, you know, I can sit down with, with someone with whom I'm, I'm working and they can tell me their GPA where they went to school and what they studied, what their LSATs are, and with with pretty good certainty, you can tell them. All right, here here are the schools you need to target. You know, these are the ones you're almost certainly going to get into. Here are the ones that you're a strong candidate for. Here are some reach ones. I mean, you you know, you can you can narrow it down pretty quickly with a fair degree of precision. Uh, it, now, the the challenges of recent years have really opened that up in some unpredictable ways, and so so it, so it is a buyer's market right now, where people whose Credentials three or five years ago may not have positioned them to get into certain schools or might not have positioned them to get uh, the kind of money that they're now able to get from certain schools uh, has changed. But there is this kind of, kind of scientific quality about it, right? I mean, you just, you know, you can run it through the meat grinder. What's your LSAT? What's your GPA, et cetera? And, and that determines to some extent whether you're in the ballpark or not. Yep. Now, within that, there, you know, different schools will give different weight. To the LSAT versus the GPA, uh, you know, uh, some schools, you know, they're they're more or less fifty-fifty. Other schools will give greater attention to, say, the LSAT. Right? I mean, the LSAT, you know, the benefit of the LSAT is it's, uh, for lack of a better word, objective. Right? It, it doesn't take account of, you know, it's, it's, it, the scores is without respect to work history, major, college, et cetera. I mean, it's just it's just a number. Now other schools will will give some greater weight to um, to to GPA right viewing you know viewing I think understandably the GPA acquired over the course of four years as much more indicative of the abilities of a student over the long haul to succeed in law school than one test taken on one day um, so <laughs> Now, now within the GPA, of course, also that you know, there's there's just the number of GPA that you report to LSAC, but then there's also where did you go to school? What was your major? What was your major? And 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 not all GPAs are going to be alike. I mean, a a, a three eight in physics from an elite university is going to be more valuable than a 4.0 GPA. In uh, you know a uh, uh, sports management from a, a small regional college. I mean, it, ju- it just is the case. So so the, you know, there's there's a bit more room for the subjective weighing of the value of GPA, uh, and and different schools will do different things with that. Uh, you know, and then of course, of course on top of that are all of these other factors. There's there's the the, the personal statement, the letters of recommendation, supplemental materials, and statements that one might supply, all of which I, I think you can sort of view them as as persuasive authority. I mean, I'm, I'm I mean, it's it, it would be very rare in which a person gets admitted because of their personal statement, but but on the margins they 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 can absolutely make a difference. And they also, you know, look there's a, there's a human element in admissions. I mean, insofar as as yes, there is something of a scientific Dimension to it. These are also human beings reading statements, and and insofar as 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 any given applicant falls into that space where their numbers alone don't simply make an admissions decision unquestioned, then part of what you're doing is you're, is you're making an appeal to to the human being who is reading that statement. You're trying to convey, look, you know, maybe my GPA was a little bit low. Uh, but but here are the reasons why, and let me reveal in my personal statement what a serious and mature and thoughtful person I am. Give me a chance. Um, so that's you know that's where all of these other materials, the letters, the personal statements, supplemental documents of various sorts, come into play, and why they can be such such an important part of the of the process. The other thing they do is is I, is they help to frame a narrative. Um, one thing I always counsel my, my clients on doing is thinking about. The cumulative impact that an admissions package makes, you know, all of these individual parts, some of which in isolation might be more important or more highly weighed than others, but they all need to be viewed as cumulatively creating a portrait or a narrative of the applicant. And there has to be a way in which it all makes sense, you know. The college you went to, what you studied, your LSAT, what you've done by way of work experience, your personal history, et cetera. You, you know, part of what you're doing is presenting a composite portrait of you, the applicant, and appealing to, you know, appealing to the people who are reading these 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 statements, are reading these these these, uh, these packages, and making decisions, who are considering in part the sense of, you know, law school classes are in part numbers. You know, they're just they're just. Abstracted numbers divorced from the persons with whom they are associated, but law school classes are also composites of human beings who, who represent all sorts of of different experiences, different ages, different races, different genders, etc. And, and universities are deeply attuned to this. Are deeply attuned to having classes that are diverse in various ways, that are you know that that kind of cre- create classroom dynamics that that are deemed to be. Um, uh, 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 you know, beneficial in the aggregate, and and so part of what you're doing is is appealing to that. You know, you're making a case that you bring something to bear that you'll contribute as an individual and not just as a couple of numbers. And so there is, you know, there's a lot of, of value that can be added to the personal statement. I'm sorry, to the uh, to the LSAT and to the GPA that can that can really be enhancing. Can you
1: can you give us an example of a narrative that? a particular student may have you know a package that you read and that package presented a certain narrative that played into your school's goals for example they wanted more people who fit this certain profile you know not just based on ethnicity or something like that
2: but maybe something more specific is that what you're saying that yeah i mean i can think of a few examples here but and it's this is always part of the challenge and it, and it and, it, and- the personal statement is, of course, the place where this is going to be most, where, where the where the most of the work is going to be done. But also think think about the resume, right? I mean, a resume is about giving a one page snapshot presentation of the self. So part of what you want to do in crafting your resume is to is to make sure that it synchronizes with the story in your personal statement, the the story you're telling in your supplemental materials. So let me give you give a few examples. I mean, I'll keep them kind of kind of general, but I think it will illustrate different. Um, kind of, kind of spots along a continuum. Uh, I mean, I, I have worked with people in the past who had remarkable and challenging life experiences. People from other countries who came to the U.S. under very difficult and challenging circumstances, and um, it, I mean, really, you know, sort of got got to college and got through college through dint of hard work and good luck and so forth. And you know, in one case, this person wanted to do human rights work. Wanted to go back to her native country, which is is beset with all kinds of, of political and economic challenges, and be involved in 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 healing that nation. Now, in her case, you know, revealing the complexity of her life as a way of speaking to why she wanted to be a lawyer made sense. I mean, so that was you know, so sort of the so the narrative arc of her statement was 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 really appealing to the life history and the challenges. Um, I've dealt with other students or seen applications from folks who were older, non-traditional students. Um, you know, maybe, fo- I mean, I can, I can think of a number of people who, you know, came from kind of working class backgrounds, paid their way through college, first generation college students, uh, you know, just worked really hard to get a bachelor's degree. Uh, many of them have had children. And now they're, you know, now they're, say, in their early 30s and they want to go to law school. So these are folks who, you know, they, they, they just, you know, by and large don't. Know the law school game. I mean, they—they they haven't. They've been out of the university world for a while. They didn't. They didn't grow up in circumstances where you know you just sort of picked up this and that about how to you know sort of how some of this professional stuff worked. Now you know their challenge is you know it's, many schools will be deeply attracted to that you know sort of sort of wanting to have older more mature students uh, uh, students who's who you know you're kind of kind of buying on a futures market students who maybe, maybe you know maybe their GPA from ten years ago isn't sparkling. But they see in this person a, a hard worker, someone who knows why they're going to go to law school. Right? This is this is a big issue now. I and mean, as schools have, uh, you may have seen that that a number of law schools have been sued in recent years for essentially uh, falsely presenting their uh, falsely representing themselves with respect to to employment prospects and so forth. So I think schools are becoming more attuned to the uh, to to making sure that students know what they're getting into. And part of that is you know a a thirty two year old. Who's willing to pay their way through? Who's you know, who's going through college at a late age? Who's got children, etc. If that person's going to law school, they you know more often than not they know what they're getting into. Whereas you know a 22 year old who's just kind of kind of going to law school because they don't they don't want to go to medical school or business school, and that can come through. You know that's a much riskier investment on the part of a law school. So that's another you know that would be another kind of kind of situation. You know, I've also dealt with students on a number of occasions who, uh, you, you know, who have nice credentials. Maybe, maybe they're not sort of sparkling in the, you know, in, in a in a in a way that just kind of screams perfect and elite and, and so forth. And part of their challenge is, I mean, I, mean, I remember working with a couple of folks who ju- who just said, you know, I'm I'm just kind of, you know, my my my, my life is just kind of unremarkable. I sort of grew up in a upper middle class family and you know I've got both of my parents are professionals and I went to a good school and I did pretty well but not great and now I'm 22 and I want to go to law school and, and sort of there the challenge is what do I do you know how do I make myself appear anything other than just I'm you know, just kind of kind of an average kid who was a you know a, 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 in a fraternity in college and here I am on the doorstep of law school and so there you know part of part of what we've tried to do actually on a couple of occasions is is turn that sense of ordinariness into an asset, you know, to 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 to, uh, to in various ways that 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 I won't I won't go into, but but to kind of kind of you know to try to figure out you know it's it's again trying to figure out something that's that's interesting and appealing and coherent about about the individual's uh, life history and and where they want to go you know where they want to go prospectively.
1: Yeah. So uh, sorry to interrupt for a second. I'm, I'm just curious about the nuts and bolts of this. Like, so at your school, they gave you as a faculty member, they gave you packages to review. That's not
2: always the case, right? Yeah, other schools, they do. No, no, that's right. I, I think in, in most schools now, uh, the, the admissions process is almost entirely outsourced to non-faculty people in the admissions department. Which has like seven or eight people, or yeah, it would, it would vary based on the size, but uh, you know, four, eight, yeah, mm-hmm. it's sort of depending on on the size of the school and the resources. But yeah, it's almost it's it's done almost entirely by, if you will, lay people. Um,
1: so so the applications come in and they sort of filter them maybe based on these numbers, right, and then <laughs> they start. Divvying them up based on the numbers and people start reviewing them, or some people are like, I think I remember hearing that there's sort of like a presumptive, you know, people who are presumptively going to be denied, people who are presumptively going to be admitted, and then you have the people in the middle, but maybe it's more nuanced than that, or what's your experience?
2: I, I, I think that's right. That that probably, uh, you know, in, in speaking here in the broadest terms, that, that what a lot of schools would do is essentially divide things up in the tripartite way you just described. So so there's some people who I mean, I mean unless they've got a felony or you know some sort of some other reason that 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 demands additional scrutiny. You know they have got a 40 and they've got a 173 L set they're getting in, right? We don't, you know nothing else really matters unless they, so 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 they're in. And then you've got folks who who's no matter no matter what they do their numbers are just too outside of of the boundaries of what the school deems acceptable. So you know they might be issued more or less summary rejection notices. Then the action is really going to be in the middle. And these are folks who might fall within, you know, sort of the, the 25 to 75% range of that school's admissions profile. And they're the question, you know, and they're the they're they're going to be the um, the applications that demand further scrutiny. And they could come, you know, as as you as you gesture towards and these will come at all Shapes and sizes. I mean, they could be students who's uh, you know who are just sort of on the on the margins of of where the school likes to see their numbers fall, and thus you, know, you can only admit so many students of that sort without pulling your numbers down. So you have to go to second and third order factors. They. It'd be students who maybe went to a, a really challenging university or challenging took a challenging major, but their GPA was a little bit low because of that. And so there's there's kind of scrutiny in, in that in that respect. Someone who had a, you know, who's, whose GPA was dragged down by, you know, a really bad freshman year. Uh, and so the school wants to, you know, we'll dig a little deeper in, into that. Um, you know, students who are non-traditional in various ways. I mean, you could sort of concoct all manner of, of scenarios, but, you know, I think at most schools— uh, you know, most schools that aren't either at the very high end of the spectrum and thus will you know, have, have both the need and the liberty of, of being much more hard on the numbers or schools on the back end of things which uh, have, have a lot more flexibility with the numbers. You know, most applications at most schools will fall in one way or another into that middle criteria. So, in some ways, as an applicant, part of the challenge is to figure out all right what's what's my sweet spot? what are those ten schools where I really fall into that sweet spot? You know you might still apply to a couple three schools that you know where, where you fall out of the sweet spot and and you and you you know position yourself in various ways to to hopefully outrank yourself. but you know your main challenge I mean if the goal is to go to law school and to get a competitive financial package, it's to figure out what those eight or 10 schools are where you really fit the profile and you're going to fall into that you know that meat that of candidates and then figure out how to structure your application in a way that's going to make you most competitive
0: how many schools do you uh, usually advise people to apply to
2: yeah you know it's that's, that's a hard question and i i mean i don't i don't have a standard answer to it you know with with the LSAC process now it's it, when I, when i applied it was it was a matter of you know sort of lying out Manila folders all over my bedroom floor, and so so there was a certain just kind of kind of cost and administrative burden to applying yeah. to too many schools. With with LSAC now, it's uh, it's a lot administratively easier. It's really just a matter of of ponying up the money. I mean, there is a point of diminishing returns. Uh, here, here's what I let me kind of kind of answer your question a bit a bit in a, in a, in a bit of a roundabout way. Sure. Um, a couple of issues here now. With, with the market the way it is, I think there's actually a good case to be made now for perhaps applying to more schools than you ordinarily would because there's some opportunities to be had. You, know, you might be able to get an opportunity at a school where five years ago you wouldn't have gotten in, and it's hard. I mean, those kinds of schools, that it's, it's the, the scientific side of the calculation is a little less precise now than it, than it historically would have been. So there's a good case to be made for applying to what you might historically have called a reach school, uh, because you know there's a legitimate chance you might get in. Uh, that's that's one that's one issue. Uh, oh, sorry, Zach.
1: Just yeah, curious, yeah. When you said more than you ordinarily would, like ordinarily, are you talking about ten to fifteen? And so more now is like twenty to twenty-five? Or 20 to twenty-five might
2: might be too many. But but I think there's really an individualized. Determination here. I mean, another issue is this, or just what? what are the students' applications? What, what are their What are their criteria? Or their I'm um, sorry, not their criteria. Their, uh, their, um, their qualifications. Right. Um, uh, and, and let me let me phrase that more precisely. What's the fit between their qualifications and the schools which they aspire to go to? Now, if someone has sterling credentials, they very well could prudently, and I would probably advise them to just you know, just apply in a blanket fashion to the top 10 or 15 law schools see which one you get into that that combines best ranking best financial offer and go there you know students who, who don't have that luxury i think there's a need to be a bit more creative and and that could lead to making a determination that 8 to 10 applications is right it could mean 12 to 15 here's another thing that i that i that i counsel people to do Again, if you're operating outside of that national elite market, things really start to get local very quickly. So in that case, one thing you do is you start to think about, all right, you know, if I want to practice in Cleveland, it, it doesn't make sense to apply to 18 schools scattered all over the place. You know, if you, were, if, you were, if you were an undergraduate at, at Ohio State or in the Ohio State University and you want to practice law in Cleveland, it makes no sense at all to apply to the University of Houston. Wait, what
1: about uh, what about using like let's say you got and you had no intention of going to Houston but you were able to get in and get you know just by chance cuz you don't know which schools are going to want to give you money but they give you money and then you use that or yes. Houston or
2: wherever else you ended up getting money as leverage Well that's right. That's and that's and that's precisely where I was going. Is is oh, okay. That works that works best though when the schools you're trying to use for leverage view themselves as a natural competitor with the school against which they're competing. So, you know, Houston and Case Western have no, you know, they don't view themselves as competitors. They have no meaningful point of contact. Um, but if, if the schools that you're, you know, if the schools at issue are, you know, Cincinnati, Ohio State, and Case Western, well, you know, there, there's some, some common turf that they, that they share. They might be competing to some extent for the same students. And so the incentives rise. So part of what I always counsel students to do, especially the ones who, who aren't adopting the, I'm just going to apply to the top 10 schools, go to the best one. If I don't get in one of those, I'm not going to do it. You know, Assuming that's not what we're dealing with, I say find some markets where there, there are a cluster of schools. So you know, And this works, of course, especially well in, in big cities or states where there's kind of a defined legal market. And figure out where you where you fit in that market, right? You know, and, and most, you know, most big cities, just to use an example, will have one or two you know, kind of market leaders. You know, these are the elite schools, they're the ones that often uh, have have a bit of a national reach. You've got a cluster of schools the next step down, which are really solid, well-regarded schools, but they still nevertheless have a have a local focus, more or less. And then you often will have a kind of a third layer of school or schools that are also local, but they're local in a different way. You know, their admissions criteria aren't as high. They're going to be targeting smaller, different kinds of firms, maybe local or city government, as opposed to, you know, your your kind of leading local firms. So, I mean, some examples, right? I mean, in Philadelphia, you've got Penn, and that kind of stands off to itself. Uh, and, you know, a lot of Penn graduates aren't going to stay in Philadelphia, they're going to go to New York, they're going to go to Washington, et cetera. Then the next step down, you've got Villanova, Drexel, Temple, um, Rutgers, Rutgers-Camden, even Rutgers-Newark in a different way. So you've got four schools that, that are kind of clustered together in various ways. And then the next step down, you know, you have you have um, Widener, which is uh, in Delaware, um, uh, uh, I guess there's not really another kind of school in that in that bill directly in Philadelphia itself. Right? But you've got four schools there. So, you know, maybe you maybe you think Temple is the best of them. But, you know, you should just apply to all four, because if you get into Temple and Villanova, Villanova might well have an incentive to get you in because you're a student that they desire. And they're going to be much more likely to give you money if the competitor is Temple, as opposed to if the competitor is Houston. Or you know, American University. So part of the strategy is 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 thinking about kind of kind of natural clusters of schools. You know, that could be elite schools of the national market. It could be schools in a particular city. Uh, it could be schools in a in in, in a region. You know, and in this pattern that I just did with Philadelphia. This you know, this plays out with a lot of markets. Boston, same way. You know, Harvard at the top. And then you got BC and BU, and then you've got um, uh, you know uh, what I'm trying to think of the other. Um, uh, you know, you got UMass and uh, uh, New England College of Law. I mean, there's some sort of other other schools in the market, but you you tend to have the same market segregation. Washington D.C. You've got Georgetown and then GW and Mason and American and Catholic, and then University of D.C. All right? and so, so part of what you know, part of what you need to do is figure out where you want to be, and then figure out the right place within that market to target. And for the financial side of things, figure out how to position yourself to leverage those schools against other sort of, sort of competitor schools, if you will. Mm-hmm. So that, to that point,
0: um, I get emails from my students asking me how they should go about asking for more money. Do you have any insights on that?
2: Yeah. Um, it's, it's expected. Um, so so it's, not, it's not something one should be, should be shy about. They're not um, going to have
0: their offer of admission revoked because they're asking no, I've, I've never,
2: never heard of that. They're not going to, they're not going to have it revoked. Um, obviously you need to be professional about this. Right. I mean, you, you know, you're dealing with, you're dealing with human beings who, you know, there, there are professional incentives for them to make good choices, but equally so there's, there's some subjectivity involved. And if you, you know, you come across as an entitled jerk, you're, you're more likely not to, right. to you're, you're not going to get what you're asking for. Right. But, um, you know, it's perfectly appropriate to, to approach a school, um, and to describe your situation, um, I mean, I think the situation—I I think that the, the situations that work best, and where the the inquirer comes across as most authentic and has a has it has a genuine case to be made, are those where they can say where they're not where where it's clear that they're not just gaming the system and trying to use one one's school, but where they're you know they can genuinely say some version of the following: Look, I'm really interested in your school X. You know, I want to be in this city. Uh, your school makes a lot of sense to me for 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 various reasons, and you've made a very generous initial offer to me. However, School Y, which you know just happens to be in a similar market, they're competing with similar students, has offered me ten thousand dollars more a year in financial aid. I'd really like to come to you, School X. I think you make sense for these reasons. You know, you've you tend to place people in the firms that I like to work for. You've got a great internship program. Yada yada yada. You know. But you know, given given my financial circumstances and the state of the market, I'm really not in a position to turn down more than thirty thousand dollars in financial aid, and sort of see you know see what they can do. And in this market, it's uh, you know I, I was talking to someone recently who, in a matter of days, managed to to get two two schools into a. Uh, I'm going to call it a bidding war. Is a bit crass, but that's essentially what it was. And, and in a very short period of time, uh, went from paying full freight at, 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 our, at our school X to paying a de minimis amount of money uh, because that school, you know, that school wanted him and the credentials he could bring to bear and was willing to pay for it. And this is, you know, if, if there was ever a time, this is it. I mean, this is, this is, this is a buyer's market right now. Were you saying that, they were, that your student was going back and forth?
1: it wasn't just this one time. So they got an offer from school X and they went back to Y
2: and then they went back to X or were you That's just right? Y? Yeah. I mean, you, you know, I mean, you, again, you need to use kind of, kind of good, you know, uh, use good judgment in, in how you do this and, and the number of times that you do it, but you know, to, uh, it's not necessarily a one-off request. Mm-hmm. I mean, you know, I, I very rarely will it be a uh, you know back 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 and forth uh, you know at some point in time the schools are just gonna say this is the best we can do you know, end of end of discussion right and, and they need to you know schools have limited uh, limited financial aid budgets and and varying objectives that they're trying to accomplish by allocating that money I mean you know, you've know, you got to get classes with certain numbers classes that that represent certain um, you know certain um Sort of diversity targets, et cetera. So, so you know you've got a pool of money and, and you're trying to craft a class that does certain things. Mm-hmm. but but yeah, I mean it's it's not necessarily just uh, you know a, a one-off request. I, and I think this this really works best when when you develop a a meaningful professional relationship with this person or the people that you're dealing with and and can can you know and, and can and can come across as someone who is genuinely facing you know a decision. Uh, a decision that is being made in part, though not exclusively, by financial considerations, and and they understand, right? And at some point in time, they may just be able to say, "Look, we 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 just can't offer you any more. We hope you come. If not, best of luck." But if you know, if you approach this as someone who you know is, is is genuinely trying to make a prudent decision that is in your best interest, I think I, you know I think admissions officers are willing to you know to 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 kind of kind of go through that process with you. Now, when you said develop a,
1: pers- a meaningful professional relationship with these people, are you suggesting that as soon as as soon as you apply to a school, you start not bombarding them, but maybe email someone there and just – Even you know, before
0: you apply, I would think.
2: Yeah, before you apply and just start. Yeah, it's, it's, a, it's a fine line to, to, to walk on. Uh, I mean I'm not sure I would – I'm not sure I would counsel everybody to just do that as a matter of course. Now, you know, there there are a number of good opportunities to to interact with people. So, I mean, if, uh, you know, there there are law school fairs. um, If you're, you know, another great thing to do is after you've applied, maybe even before you've received an admissions decision, if you have an opportunity to visit a school, that provides an opportunity to talk to someone in the admissions or financial aid side of things. And then you've got, you know, then you've met this person and, later down the line, if it comes to this, you can, you know, the, the ability to write an appealing email that begins with, it was really nice to meet you, to have met you last month, um, you know, and, and I'd like to talk with you further about my situation. I mean, it, it's, it's, it's just easier and, and more human to, to be able to do that. Now, should you just blindly email people from the, from the financial aid or admissions side of things, concomitant with your, your applying? yeah, you know, probably not, unless it's a genuine question. I mean, you know, I mean, if you are genuinely concerned with, you know, Hey, I really want to go to school X, but, but, you know, your private school, you know, your, your sticker price is this much. I'm really concerned that without financial aid, I just can't even consider this. Could you, could you, could you provide me with some, some background on possible scholarships or what have you, you know, that, that's a legitimate question. Uh, I, I, I think it's probably a little artificial in a lot of cases to just email someone out of the blue. You know, what also just works works well in most cases, assuming you haven't had an occasion to, to visit a school yet or or what have you, is is uh, you know once you get an admissions letter, schools deal with this differently. Some schools will will include a uh, uh, an initial financial offer as part of the letter. Others will will. Deal with admissions and then and then financing separately. A couple weeks later, but once you get the financial offer, that's when you can can reach out to to someone in the admissions office and begin a conversation. But uh, uh, you know, visits to, visits to campus can can be useful in in this respect. You know, whether it be before you've heard an admissions decision or uh, a lot of folks I know, once they get admitted, will then make a visit. You know, and this is especially Good to do if you're you know, if you're relatively close to the school and can can do this without it being a an overly complicated venture. But you know you've got you've got your admissions decision. You've got your letter. Go visit the school. Uh, almost certainly you'll be able to arrange a meeting with someone in the admissions office and and sit down and have that initial conversation face to face. And and you know school the the, this, the 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 process for this might well need to unfold over several weeks, even even a couple of months, uh, depending on when you hear from different schools, you know, there could be a fairly wide spread between when you hear from your first school and when you hear from your last school. And insofar as you might want to make decisions between some of those schools that, 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 that notify you over a fairly wide swath of time, you know, this, this is not necessarily something that has to be rushed.
1: Yeah. Well, it seems like uh, over time we would just build Make it seem more authentic, anyways. In some ways, I don't know, but um, I guess. Well, so
2: and I just feel like point. we. Yeah, go ahead. So I was just going to mention one one, one last thing. You know, the, insofar as schools have a limited financial aid budget, when they make an offer to someone, you know, that money is locked up until they get a final decision, yes or no. So you know, part of part of the part of the calculation that schools are going into is they're going to want to invest in people whom they think they might have a plausible, uh, that there's a plausible case that person might come. So like to go back to our Houston uh, Case Western example, you know, they might be similarly ranked. In fact, they probably are. You know, case Western's want 35, maybe Houston's not, not all that far away, etc. But one of the reasons why Houston may not throw money at someone who's, saying, hey, but I got into Case Western, is from their perspective, what's the likelihood that, that that person who went to Ohio State, who grew up in Cleveland and wants to work in Cleveland, is going to come to Houston? Well, it doesn't make sense for them to lock up some portion of their budget in that student, even if ultimately the money comes back to them, it, you know, it limits their financial flexibility. So, so this sort of gets back to, you know, when, when you're thinking about a strategy, keep, keep in mind what's going on in those admissions offices. Right? If they view you as someone who might well plausibly come to that school, and if they want you, they said, this is someone we really want. And, yeah, our initial offer was sticker price minus $5,000. But, you know, we think, we think we can get this guy by increasing our offer $10,000. They're going to do that. So part of the challenge, and, and I don't, even to say it's a challenge is somewhat inauthentic because I think this emerges best when it, when it truly reflects the applicant and what the applicant is trying to do professionally is they're going to invest in people they think make sense for their school and who are genuinely interested in that school. So, so keep that in mind. When you, know, when you talk about visiting schools and cultivating relationships with people and applying to schools that, that fall within your plausible frame, that, that enhances your ability to get financial aid because of the, the, you know, the, the, the thinking of financial aid officers.
1: Yeah. Yeah. Well, on that note, I feel like there's a lot more that we could talk about, but to be respectful of your time, Zach, and um, uh, maybe save some of these for a later date, uh, I feel like maybe we should wrap it up there. Nathan, did you have any other questions?
0: Oh, I do, but, I mean, we're uh, <laughs> <laughs> we're running a bit long, so I, I think, Zach, if you'd like to come back, I think we'd love to continue the discussion uh, somewhere great. down the road.
2: Yeah, we'll, we'll plan it around to uh, maybe come the fall when when uh, when folks really start jumping into this process. Yeah, that'd
0: be awesome. Um, Zach, how, how do the listeners get in touch with you?
2: Okay, yeah, well, people are, are should feel free to contact me. My email address is z-a-c-h-a-r-y, period, c-a-l-o. So it's my first name, period, last name, at valpo, v-a-l-p-o, dot e-d-u. And of course, they can also... Uh, get in touch with me through Ben if, uh, if they write to Ben at uh, at Strategy. We'll put some links uh, on our website,
0: which is thinkinglsat.com. I'll put uh, your email address up there and links to maybe your faculty page at Valparaiso. Um, you can contact Ben at ben at strategyprep.com, and you can contact me at nathan at foxlsat.com. Ben, anything else? No, that's all. Thanks
2: so much, Zach. Nathan, Ben, thanks. Uh, Ben, good being with you. Yeah, thanks, Zach. Really nice to meet you. So long now. Mm